Welcome to the First Right Podcast, a weekly conservative news show brought to you by Restoration Pack. I'm Doug Truax, founder and president of Restoration Pack. Today, we are blessed to have Richard Grinnell, fresh off his outstanding speech at the Republican National Convention. Mr. Grinnell has emerged as President Trump's fiercest and most articulate foreign policy and intelligence advocate. He's helping the campaign now after stints as U.S. Ambassador to Germany and Acting Director of National Intelligence. And we are proud to say he's a friend of Restoration Pack. So, Rick, thanks for being here. Oh, Doug, thank you. It's, it's a thrill. I've been looking forward to this. Awesome. Really great to see you. And I just, uh, I just been enjoying all the, all the, uh, all the press you've been getting. And, uh, you know, you're kind of, uh, with the de declassification, you've kind of turned into this folk hero for the conservatives. And I really think that there was this moment where we all looked at you and said, well, finally, somebody's really doing something about this. So thanks for all you've been doing recently. And we'll talk about that uh, uh, as part of our conversation today. But so great speech. Uh, and so the thing about it was I, I felt like, you know, we really uh, did way better than the uh, than the uh, Democrats did for sure. Um, but what was that like? Just out of curiosity, before I'm going to play, we're going to play some clips of it. But what was that like having that? Uh, you know, it's a much different experience than, you know, anybody's been used to. What was what was your experience with it? Well, I've been going to conventions since 1992, and I have to say that at first I was so disappointed that it was like not on the big stage and not sure. the balloons dropping and, you know, the 50 state delegations and the crowd and the roar and all of that. You know, I, I love uh, conventions for the everyman. I love the idea of having all of the activists on the floor and talking to them. And you get a real great sense of the party structure. And so we missed that, right? I mean, what you don't get is is when you're looking uh, at the speeches in that gorgeous hall, it's totally empty. Right, <laughs> like right. Nobody is there. There's like one director with a piece of paper that kind of says, okay, now. And You've got to bring your energy and you got to decide what, you know, somebody at home wants to see. It's, it's a very difficult um, format to try to figure out how, what level. I mean, think about that. You're, you're speaking to an empty room, but you're actually speaking to 15 million people. So you're like, what's my yeah. you know, supposed yeah. to be. Yeah, there's a lot going on there. Well, you did a great job. And I that's exactly what I was thinking. It's a it's a it's such a contrast from what people are used to. And uh, I would have loved to have been there this year, but uh, they didn't work out for you know anybody but the speakers. So but you know, you did a great job. And I know you've been hearing that a lot. And uh, I think everybody did a great job. That was a great that that's that was the best of a bad situation uh, by a mile. So that was really good. Well, I wanted to get into, um, you know, what you said, uh, right out of the gate about uh, President Trump's foreign policy. So we'll play this clip and then we'll come back and talk about it. In four years, Donald Trump didn't start any new wars. He brought troops home. He rebuilt the military and signed peace deals that make Americans safer. The Washington elites want you to think this kind of foreign policy is immoral. And so they call it nationalist. That tells you all you need to know. The D.C. crowd thinks when they call Donald Trump a nationalist, they're insulting him. As if the American president isn't supposed to base foreign policy on America's national interests. So that's the one thing that I've anecdotally, as I talk to, you know, friends and family, they say that's the thing that people just don't get outside of D.C. when you have 
a lot of us out in what flyover country or what is the conservatives like, yeah, we want our president to really care about us and less about the bureaucrats and the system in D.C. So so spot on there. So what do you think, though, like you articulated really well, but we see the media just constantly trying to muddy this all the time, you know, so what, what do you. Uh, what do you see there with the media? What's their, what's their number one effort with trying to distract us from what the, uh, pre the president's actually doing in his foreign policy? Well, the first thing that I saw in that clip was that I had a really nice, fresh haircut. I, I rem reminded <laughs> her she should get one. Um, got, got ready for the big speech. Right. Uh, but I will, I will say this is that there's such a value in being outside of Washington and not reading Politico and not reading, you know, mm -hmm. the Washington Post and the New York Times have uh, have paywalls, right? You have to pay to get that that terrible news. Who does that? I, I don't. I, 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 you know, read the headlines that people send me or the clips and, uh, you know, you get your free two or three, um, you know, stories per month. But I just, I think I'm more in touch with regular Americans because I live outside of Washington, D.C. And I keep saying this, Doug, and I really mean it. I don't think that we have a fight between Republicans and Democrats anymore. I think we have a fight between Washington elites and the rest of America. Mm -hmm. By the way, the Bernie Sanders voters believe that. The Tea Party voters believe that. The Donald Trump voters believe that. So we have a situation where you know, all of the bureaucracy and, and all of the people in Washington, D.C. think one way and the rest of America is frustrated and, and Washington, D.C. doesn't get it. And so what I realized after being at the U.N. for eight years and being surrounded by diplomats of 192 countries is that there's only one country in the world that gets in trouble for, for pushing its own agenda. That's the United States. I've never been in a diplomatic meeting, which I've been in thousands of them. I've never been in one where the other side doesn't say, okay, here's the list of things that we would like that we want the United States to do. So they give us this list constantly. They say, these are our demands. This is what we would like you to do. But they never, um, you know, w w when we do it, uh, we get in trouble and, and they, they never expect the United States to say, well, this is what we want. And so Donald Trump has kind of flipped that script. And, and we are trying to fight for what everyday Americans think. And, and I truly believe that the last couple of decades of foreign policy have really benefited Washington, D.C. insiders and think tanks. But it hasn't made Americans safer until the last couple of years when Donald Trump is focused on it. Absolutely. And, you know, you think about during the campaign and he just kept rising up through everybody. And it was this, well, what's the deal with this? And I don't know that everybody that was in support of him could actually fully articulate it, but it was this sense of, I think, here's this guy, doesn't need the job, doesn't need the money, doesn't need the connections. But you get the sense he loves the country and he's going to look out for us. And, and you know, the, the piece that I loved that, that you talked about was when, you know, the, the summation for me is like when Trump go, goes to the uh, uh, European leaders, he's like, hey, guys, nice job, you know, beating my predecessors over the head. But uh, that's over. And so he he's got that way about him where it's like, yeah, I, I get what you did. I mean, I kind of would have done it myself, but uh, new sheriff in town, you know. And that's what I meant when I was saying, you know, he really charmed Chancellor Merkel. Um, you know, the media, of course, have attacked me to say, oh, you know, she doesn't look charmed. 
or she didn't, you know, say say yes, she was charmed. I mean, come on, it's it's a ridiculous right. kind of level of proof is that she's supposed to say yes, I was charmed, but but the reality is is that she was charmed, and I don't back away from that at all. When he's in those meetings and he says. Look, you're fighting for Germany. I don't blame you. I don't blame you for wanting America and the taxpayers to pay for your security and then look the other way when you're buying Russian gas through Nord Stream 2 pipeline. I don't blame you. You're fighting for Germany and and you can't blame me for now wanting to fight for the American people. That type of argument really does disarm the other side to kind of say, okay, they, he understands that that what I was doing was fighting for the German people, but now he's going to be fighting for the American people, and we may have a, a disagreement on that. It's a charming move. It's it's disarming. Yeah, for sure. And I, I I always think too that these professional politicians they look at him, and while they may say, "Oh, that's kind of annoying that the guy just comes out and says what he thinks," I think in the back of their mind they're thinking, "I've spent a career." not saying exactly what I think, but hedging here and hedging there. And this guy just walks straight into the room and is like, here's the deal, and this is what we're going to do. I think part of them is like, wow, that's pretty, that's pretty impressive that he's able to do that. So anyways, just a, a side note. But I think there's just lots that he does that nobody's used to, including you know foreign leaders. And, but the root of everything, um, and I forget the speaker that was, but yeah, it was just at the convention, it was just always, you know, he's asking himself, what's best for the American people? Now it's yeah, good for all the people in DC and everything, but what's best for the American people? That's what I love about and it. And I, I have to say that one of the things that I tried to do in that speech was to give the American people a sense of how he does that. Right. Um, exactly how you say how he fights for the American people. And for me, it really is uh, something to, to watch and learn from when, when he's doing diplomacy because he, he does go in and he is charming. He, he, he is all about listening. And, and I know that the media, they don't think that this actually happens, but, but he does sit in there and he'll listen and, and he will um, respond calmly. It's, it's a complimentary style. He compliments the other side for what they've been doing. And then when it's kind of the turn for what America wants, he's very blunt. And he's very direct, and he'll say, "Look, I I just don't think that you should not be paying your two percent. I mean, you're at like one point three, and your commitment was two. Why, yeah. you know? And when you're when you talk that directly, I think you get the respect on the other side. But let me just finish by saying he is always, always nice. I have never seen him be rude. He's always nice. How about it? When I think that that too, if you want to get a deal done." In corporate America, and I grew up in corporate America as a broker, and same thing. You got you to gotta listen. You go into the deal knowing uh, this is what I want, and I'm going to hear the other side out. And I want to make sure they know that I heard what they said, but then I'm still going to try to get what I want. you know. And, and if you're nice about it, you're that much closer to getting it done. If you come in and just get confrontational, it's hard to do. And, and obviously, he's a, he's a deal maker big time. So, um, so uh, yeah, so let's move on then. Um, so let's talk about uh, the swamp a little bit more. And, uh, you know, let's talk about our buddy Biden. And uh, let's roll that clip that you, uh, the, the clip from your speech where you're talking about him and his history. Joe Biden was first elected to the Senate in 1972, 48 years ago. 
Well, it's actually the typical Washington story. Just this year, 22 Democrats ran for president. They rejected all of the outsiders and nominated the ultimate Washington insider, someone they had to pull out of retirement. So the deal is on Biden, and everybody knows this, is they, they try to roll him out as this like new and improved version, I don't know, whatever. He's lost so many times before, and he's always been this career politician blowhard, and then now they're trying to make him something he's not. So, you know, just talk about lack of courage for somebody. I mean, you've been around him plenty. So any, anything else you'd like to add about him that we could, uh, we could talk about today? You know, first of all, you have to think about I don't know how the Democrats nominated him. Seriously, they had so many choices and they went for the the guy who's lost it so many times and who had, they had to pull out of retirement. They had so many other more exciting choices. I know I have a ton of friends who are Democrats. I live in California, so most of my friends are Democrats. Um, and they're all kind of freaking out to say, how did we get into this place where how many is Joe Biden, like I thought we rejected him, uh, you know, 20 years ago. And so we do have a situation where he's clearly weak and he got the nomination because he was kind of everybody's third choice, right? He, he certainly didn't have a fan base, but he kept, everybody kept saying, well, everybody else ha kind of has these problems. And so maybe we should go with the guy at least that everybody knows and, and we have big name ID. And I think that the reason why the the Democrats got behind him is because they felt like he was controllable. They've, they've worked with him for 25 years and he's totally somebody who will do what they say. He's also completely uh, a phony. He's changed his, his positions on so many issues because the party has progressed a certain way. And so he's trying to stay with it. So. I think that also sends a message to everybody that all of his positions are up for grabs and up for negotiation. And, and that makes them happy is to say, okay, well, we got a chance with this guy to really move him into, you know, the, what Bernie Sanders would say is um, the positions that, that he takes, that the radical positions of years ago are now mainstream. Those are Bernie's own words. So I think when you look at the fact that he is so weak, You've got to compare it to what's happening in the world right now with riots and the violence. Um, he, he's clearly too weak to stand up to the Biden supporters that are rioting and creating violence. We all know that they're Biden supporters. Uh, everybody can see that. And yet he was unwilling to say to them, knock it off. He did this you know, big speech, everybody uh, in the media were saying, oh, this is his moment. This is his sister soldier moment. Really give it to him. <laughs> right. He didn't even say BLM. Right. He didn't even utter the words. I mean, he's just too weak to, yeah. to do anything. And, and they think that that's going to be the path is to, you know, just slide under, make this about Trump style and just be weak. But I think that the, the violence in our cities um, has really taught people that we need a strong leader. And then you've got somebody like President Trump who goes straight to the African-American community and says, why do you keep voting for these guys? You know, the inner cities are terrible. Everybody knows that. And he's stating the obvious. Yeah. I love having a Republican that is appealing to working class 
and African-Americans and, and all of the groups that we used to in the Republican Party think about as outreach to, now they're like at the table of substance. They're part of us and I love it. Yeah, and I think that, the, that uh, us as Republicans, I know I am, I am finally feeling like when we say this stuff at the convention or we're talking about these things, now with Trump, we're actually gonna act on them. We're not just going to yeah. say we're going to do it. We're going to go through and do it because we all knew we all knew back then true conservatism was the way to go. We just weren't getting the, you know, we weren't getting the follow through. And and he yeah. will. And, and I'm with you. The, the tent gets bigger all the time. I have to mention one quick funny thing. So when I was watching you on Tucker, um, you started getting into that. Uh, let's move the federal government out of D.C. piece. And uh I stood there and I, and I, you know, you, you know, my wife, Nicole, I said, Nicole, did you mention that to Rick? Cause I haven't heard anybody. I've been talking about that for like a year or more. Cause that's a great idea. So, you know, great minds or whatever, but so that's another one that is like so far, uh, it's like a foreign concept, right. To a lot of people, but why would we let, you know, it's like the breeding ground for people like Joe Biden and the way that they come up and the thing they do. And you've been there way more than me. I mean, I saw a lot when I ran for Senate, uh, but you know, why wouldn't we start moving these departments out to, you know, let's move them to red states, obviously. Uh, but yeah. Let's move them out there and, and change up. And if a lot of people quit on the way, I don't know, it happens. Corporate America moves headquarters all the time. We could do this, right? It's, it's a great idea. You know, the way that I stumbled onto this is that I, I saw the debate in Washington about, you know, making D.C. a state. And I thought, oh, my word, yeah. are you kidding? The whole idea was to go to D.C. It was going to be a temporary place, and then you'd go back and live under the laws that you created. Our founders never envisioned that this would be like a hub of, of federal government, uh, you know, swampiness. Yeah. And so what we have is a system where the same pool of people who live in the D.C. area are the ones who get the jobs at Labor Department or Homeland Security or the State Department or the Pentagon. It's the same system. And the only way that you get a job is if you know the system, if you know somebody, you know what website to go to and what lingo to use, right? You have to be able to say this federal government lingo. An outsider has no chance. An outsider literally cannot come in and get one of these jobs because the the interviewer is like, well, were you the deputy assistant secretary anywhere before this? And uh, you can't, you know, apply to be an assistant secretary until you've been the principal right. deputy. Right. You know, it's all this lingo that nothing. And so, I started to think if DC wants to act like a state, then they're going to have to have an economy that is like the other states, which is. Uh, comp competitive, they're going to have to diversify. And the whole labor force right now is in Washington. So I wanted to be able to say, look, there are consequences for Washington, D.C. becoming a state, which means no one state should have a grip on the federal labor force. We've realized this in a post-COVID world, how dangerous it is to have everybody in one place anyway. Why not move them all out? I also will just finish by telling you, I told President Trump that when he's reelected and when he starts hiring, that he should make sure that everybody looks at the resumes of, of anybody who's applying and anyone who has a Washington, D.C. vicinity address, he should reject and he should only hire people from the outside. Love it. Love it. it needs to happen. We are going in the, in the wrong direction on this and we need to pull it back. So absolutely. Good stuff. 
Okay, that was a little sidebar. <laughs> so I really wanted to get into uh, uh, one of our final things here. So um, Obamagate, Spygate, let's talk about that. So let's play this third clip. As acting director of national intelligence, I saw the Democrats' entire case for Russian collusion. And what I saw made me sick to my stomach. The Obama-Biden administration secretly launched a surveillance operation on the Trump campaign and silenced the many brave intelligence officials who spoke up against it. They presented bogus information as facts. They lied to judges. Then they classified anything that undermined their case. And after Donald Trump won the election, when they should have continued the American tradition of helping the president-elect transition into the White House, they tried instead to undercut him even more. Yeah, so sad, sad stuff. Um, and I'm, you know, really read into all this whole thing. And I know that there's only so I'm read in as much as I can be. Uh, and I know there's a there's a there's a bunch of stuff out there that, that you probably are, are aware of that you can't get into. But the one thing that we wanted to ask you about that you did mention in the speech is there, you know, silencing people. Um, so uh, talk to that. What, what's you know, we hear about the intelligence community and this this uh, what they did and everything. And, and we can't all think that all oh, is everybody in there. Obviously, there's the good people in there trying to do the right thing. And maybe there were some good people that said, hey, this is all wrong. We should stop doing this. But then they got pushed to the side or silenced. So maybe you get into that a little bit, Rick. Yeah, it's a really good question to, to get pulled out. Um, the reality is, is that there are a lot of career intelligence officials. And I would say the majority of career intelligence officials who are really frustrated with the leaks. These are people who say, you know, we keep secrets for a living. We're supposed to be the agency that knows how to keep secrets. And why do we have this incredible problem of leaks? So we have a few bad apples, but I really pushed the intelligence community to start policing themselves. They know who, who's leaking. They know when they're sitting in a meeting of six people right. and then that information leaks out. They know exactly who the leaker are, who the leaker is. And they need to be able to say to their colleagues, stop it, knock it off. You're, you're ruining our industry and you're making America less safe by doing this. It's one of the reasons why John Radcliffe is changing to uh, written form. A, a, a briefing for politicians. The politicians are going to get exactly what they always get. They're going to be read in and they're going to know what the threats are and going to get the intelligence assessments. But doing it verbally, we found, and I have personally found a couple of times, it, it's not good um, because that information leaks in ways that the politicians use it for political purposes. And by the way, our side did it under Obama. It's not just unique to the Democrats. It's happening now with the Democrats, but Republicans leak too. Yeah. And so we have to find a way to, to really minimize that. Um, what I would say too is to your question about those career intelligence officials who raised red flags, there are plenty of them. Their, their uh, warnings or information was classified and pushed aside. Um, many times they were, um, you know, told to kind of pipe down. There are reports still to come that will highlight some of this. And I was pushing very hard to say, look, transparency is not political. No one's doing this to be political. But, but when I read what uh, 
what what the case was and what people said under oath, um, it's quite different than what they said in public. And it made me very sad that we had kind of been hoodwinked. You know, we we were um, we we were told one thing on on you know public commentate by public commentators. And then when those public commentators were under oath, they said something very different. They said they didn't see any collusion. And so it, it, as I read more, it, I just got sad yeah. that this had happened to us. And so I felt like the best way to deal with it would be to declassify this information, which by the way, didn't include any sources or methods. Right. My team at, at DNI, when I said, you know, we need to declassify this stuff, this is outrageous. And the public is smart enough to be able to read it and they deserve this information. The, the career intelligence officials agreed with me. They, they said, there's no sources or methods here. It just was classified and put away. And when I asked why, the answer was, well, the people who sat in the chair before you never really asked this question. And so it wasn't protecting sources. It wasn't protecting the methods of how we got some of this information. It was literally protecting the process or the people, you know, much like a PR move, uh, just to protect the mistakes. And I think that if we don't have the American public believing in their institutions as being forthright and for honesty and transparency, we're gonna we're gonna have damage to this country that is um, incredibly hard to overcome. Yeah, and so. I think that the transparency move, while painful in the short term, is going to benefit us because the public will have more faith in their institutions. And we have to go back in that direction. I couldn't agree with you more. And I'm thankful for what you did. And it's a shame that the guys before you didn't do more of that. Um, and I think that we as conservatives in particular need to feel like the rule of law is going to prevail. You know, you talk about the leakers and I'm okay if some people have to go to jail. You know, if that's your job. If you sign up, you say, hey, this is what I'm going to do, and I'm going to keep this information secret, and it's damaging. We, there need to be consequences. So is, heading in that direction is a, is a great idea, and on that, that front, so do you think that folks that are waiting for the truth and waiting to go back a different direction are going to be happy when um, Durham comes out with the report and we're, you know, we're getting there? I mean, what, what, what's, your, what, what are you, what's your commentary on that? Yeah, you know, to be honest, uh, you know, I try to to stick to my lane and tell people what I know, and when I don't know something, I, sure. I'm honest about it. Um, I, I had a very one-way relationship with the Durham team, which was just to give information that they requested. Right, right. Uh, get much information from them, and so uh, I have confidence in them. They seem very thorough in terms of what they were asking for and how they were going about it. Um, so I'm, I'm confident that uh, transparency will be our friend. Good, good. Well, good. I am too. So I'm, I'm with you on that. So we'll, we'll see. So I'm really bullish. So where are you right now? I'm feeling good. Biden had a reverse course. He didn't talk about violence forever. Now he's against it. So that's a, when I'm from a political standpoint from a campaign, and I know you know this, it's like when the guy starts changing his tactic this late in the game, it's a bad sign for them. So how do you how do you feel about the presidential race in general right now? And, and what do you think President Trump needs to be doing from here on out? Look, I, I speak to President Trump very regularly, and I always tell him the same thing, which is just share more of your heart 
um, because he, he really is a, a very nice and conscientious uh, human being. Um, you don't get that from the tweets all the time. And so I, I, what I try to say to the president is just, uh, you know, talk and share your heart because people, people will see um, exactly that he's focused on uh, the American people. He's, he's terribly uh, um, disciplined. I mean, he's just wonderfully, and I mean that in a very like hip way. Uh, <laughs> You know, the, the use of the word terribly, like in, in a very hip way, my nephews use it. I mean, he's focused and, and is always, always asking questions. Um, I'll, I'll give you an example. When uh, I, I was in the Oval Office and there were a whole bunch of people kind of complaining about the rising uh, or the tanking of oil prices and whether or not, you know, the United States should get involved and call certain countries and try to figure out, hey, should we do something different? The president really upended the whole conversation by saying, look, I think, you know, regular people are having cheap gas right now. I'm not sure that I should be making calls for the multi-millionaires of, of energy companies. Um, people can fill up their tank a lot cheaper. And and to have that perspective in the Oval Office from a Republican to me is super rare. And so I I want him to share those moments more. I want him to show that he is focused on working class people. He doesn't have the typical kind of rich man's uh, Republican viewpoint. It's one of the reasons I joined him early, and it's one of the reasons why I think that he will win is if people can really see who he's fighting for. There, it's a phony argument coming from the left that somehow he's fighting for Wall Street. I've never been in a meeting where he cares about rich people. He always is focused on what everyday Americans, hardworking Americans, union members, uh, you know, working class people, what they are focused on. And uh, that's an, a Washington outsider perspective that the Washington insiders hate. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. As well they should because they're not used to it. And uh we are all loving it. That's the way it should be. So second Trump administration, director of the FBI, something like that, secretary of state. Uh, Come on, uh, Rick, just tell us what you think. I'm, <laughs> I, I'm in Southern California. I'm content. Uh, I have to tell you, as you know, Doug, I, I'm a cancer survivor, uh, six years cancer free. And um, I had a terrible non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Uh, episode that came on really fast and it was a stage three and, and atrocious disease and I beat it and I'm always sensitive to living healthy and taking time for uh, for perspective and so I, I'm having a great time in Southern California. I think I'm pretty content. Yeah, for sure. Well, you're doing great work and thanks for all that you did here recently and over the years too, Rick. It's, uh, it's great to have you on the team with us, all of us conservatives and kind of like a new era that we're entering and uh, and hopefully we'll, you know, keep going that direction with a second uh, Trump administration. So thanks for being on today. Well, thank you for all your work. And uh, if I can just encourage you, we need your voice in Washington, Doug. <laughs> right, right. Well, much like what you just said, I've got a life now and outside Chicago, <laughs> no, I, <laughs> no, I know what you mean. We've all got to be fighting. Absolutely. So thanks, Rick. I really appreciate it. Great well, all right. That's our show for today. Thank you so much for tuning in and for supporting conservative media. Don't ever forget, working together and staying diligent, we conservatives can bring our, our country back to true greatness. Until next week, let's all keep praying that God will continue to bless America.
First Right, a new kind of news summary without liberal slant. Every morning, in your inbox, always free. Subscribe now at restorationofamerica.com slash first right or text first right to 1-312-820-9167.